Well, we are continuing the series through the book of Philippians, and I'll invite you to turn to chapter 1 as we conclude the first chapter this evening of the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We'll be preaching from verse 27 to 30, but I will just want to back up and provide a little bit more context, and so we'll start reading at verse 19 of Philippians 1. So verse 19, Philippians 1. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for you. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only yet let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. O God, as we come to the preaching of your holy word, we ask that you'd give us insight, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us eyes to see and behold and to hold up our lives in light of your word to make adjustments accordingly that would please and honor your name. And we pray and ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago that we talked about death and we know the passage in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 that tells us that Jesus died that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Many people live in light of the fear of death. It's something that plagues many different people as they think and consider on their own death and the death of other people. And we know that the Apostle Paul had a freedom from the fear, from the fear of death. He was not afraid to die at all. And we looked at that great verse there in verse 21. To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We see that the Apostle Paul throughout this first chapter here had all kinds of difficulties. But in spite of the difficulties, he had joy. He was joyful. He was joyful as long as Christ's cause was progressing. We saw that in verses 12 to 14. And in verses 15 to 18, we saw that despite all of the detractors in his life, those people that wanted to stir up difficulties and trials and increase his chains, the Apostle says, He still had joy because Christ's name was still being proclaimed by even these people who are trying to 
stir up adversity for him in prison. And so we see this, and we see that great verse there, perhaps the Apostle Paul's life verse, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saw that and we unfolded it that six words with three different points, to me to live is Christ. And that is the essence of the Christian life. To me, to live as Christ. It's personal, it's practical, and it's possible. I had a friend tell me that some years ago, and that always stuck with me, that little outline there. It's personal, it's practical, and it's possible. To me, to live is Christ. To me, we must rest alone on Christ for salvation. No one else can see to it that we are saved in our lives. We have to believe personally in the Lord Jesus Christ or else we are lost. And then to live, it's practical. Christianity is practical. It is to live. We have an ongoing daily interaction with the Lord of the universe. We have that daily relationship with him. And so every moment we spend with him, every heartache we can bring to him, all of the adversity that we face in our lives, we can bring to him. All of the tears, all of the trials, we can leave with him. And so Christianity is personal, it's practical, and then, of course, it is possible because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is possible because of Christ. To me, to live is Christ. It's all about him. He is the main focus of our lives. We live before him, and all of life is about him. And our salvation, of course, is possible only through him. To me, to live is Christ. We are saved by grace alone. And so that brings us to the verses before us tonight. God has given us light. Now what should our life look like? God has given us that light. How shall we then live? Well, a few days ago, I was on a a website of a local restaurant and I saw that they had these core values and it was written out in five different word statements. And I found that interesting because I was already thinking through this passage, of course, and wondering, how am I going to outline this passage? And I was thinking of one word descriptions for each of the points that I had. And then I saw these, these points that they had, and though I'm not going to use them exactly, some of the different words... I was struck by the fact that some of the different words they use as their core values were also used here by the Apostle Paul. And so that is how I want to break down and outline this passage for us tonight is by using these one word descriptions. And the first word that we see is consistency. Consistency. We see that right off the bat in verse 27a in the first part there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a great statement that is. What a hard statement that is to live up. Do you ever feel like you're being watched? You are being watched all the time. There's traffic cameras. There's people with cell phone cameras. There's satellite cameras that can watch in and zero in on people and see their license plates from outside of space. It's an amazing thing. We are constantly, as a people, being watched. But not only that, you as a Christian are constantly being watched by the world as to how you live your life. And we see here that the word worthy conveys the idea of putting your life on a scale, two sides of a scale. The things that we say on the one side and the things that we actually do on the other side. Have you ever heard the words said to you? This would be a very cutting thing to be said to you. The last words you ever want to hear as a Christian are these words. And you call yourself a Christian. 
Has anyone ever said that to you? How cutting that is. I can remember somebody did say that to me once. And you call yourself a Christian. Now, I'm thankful that this person was accusing me of something that I didn't really do. So I felt good about that at least. But it is terrifying to hear those words. And you call yourself a Christian. Because what the person is saying to you is that your life and your lips don't add up. They're not worthy of the gospel. When you put them on the scale, when you put those things on the sides of the scale, they just, they just don't measure up. They don't add up. And so, no, we don't live up to everything that we know perfectly. We are not perfect, that's for sure. But is there consistency in your life? On balance, is there consistency in your life? Does your life and lips adorn the gospel or detract from the gospel? Only, that means above all, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then the Apostle Paul uses that phrase as a launching pad to go into a number of different of exhortations for us about what's that, what that's going to look like. What does it look like to have our lives live out in this way? What does that look like to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel? Your manner of life. Your, your Bible version could say conduct. Perhaps it uses the word conduct there in that phrase. Now we get the word, that word from the word politics or police or policy. It's a political term, but not the way that we would view modern politics. But as part of a Roman city-state in Philippi, Paul urges them to conduct themselves in a manner that best represents that state where they are from. To be a good citizen. Being a good citizen means honoring that affiliation that we are a part of. Citizenship has great privileges with it. It also has responsibility with it. And it's something that the Philippians would have understood well as living in a Roman colony where they lived. They had all sorts of advantages and privileges that came with that. They're not near Rome, but they're away from Rome and they are a Roman colony there. And so it is just as if they were a part of the city of Rome. They inherit all of the same privileges that the people in Rome would have enjoyed. And that would include things like tax exemptions and prestige and honor and different things that went along with it. And as the Lord's people, where is our citizenship? Well, the Apostle Paul goes on in chapter 3 and verse 20 to tell us that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we might be living as a part of this world, just like the Philippians were living in Philippi, but yet we've been created for the next world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been created for another world. And so the idea here is let's conduct ourselves, let our manner of life be such that we are offering to others the very best of the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is driving at here. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel that we are offering to this world the very best of the kingdom of God. That is a high and a holy calling that we are called to live out. The very best of the kingdom. We want to offer to a watching world a representation of the very best of that kingdom to which we truly belong. We are representatives, citizens of that heavenly kingdom, and we are to represent that kingdom. So Paul is saying that our life should be marked by consistency, to have that kind of quality that we'd see that's worthy of being called a Christian, that is worthy of the gospel. 
And this type of consistency will be marked by harmony. We see that in 27b here. Harmony, or we could say unity. We should be living in harmony or unity, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. That's a unity of purpose. It's a unity of purpose that we see here. Standing firm, contending as one for the faith of the gospel. If you've ever seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, you can, you can see what this type of standing firm would look like. And you can picture the, the soldiers standing there with the shields, having the shields interlocked. They're fighting, they're battling as one. So all of the opposition that they're facing, the artillery that they're facing, they are together as one to be able to combat these different things that are happening. And that's the picture that we see here. And the people of Philippi would be very familiar with this type of imagery. And we can see all through this passage a type of military mindset that the apostle has. He's almost, he's almost treating them and talking to them as soldiers. That's why we read earlier from these different passages that that talk about taking up the the armor of the Lord in these different songs that we've sung that talk about these themes as well. And when in battle, the soldiers would stand side by side. They'd have that interlock. They'd be battling together as one. And Paul is saying that this type of consistency and unity is critical to contending for the faith, to having that unified purpose in contending for the faith. When I became a Christian at the age of 18, about a month later, I read my first Christian book. I found it at a used bookshop in Edmonton. And that book was The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Now, I don't recommend all of Tozer's theology, but this particular book had a big impact on me at that particular time in my Christian life, just barely knowing anything from anything. And I picked up and I read that book and it had a great impact upon me. And it was very worthwhile, and I enjoy some of uh, Tozer's uh, books for sure. He's a, he's a pretty good author. But here, he talks about uh, being as one as the people of God. And I think that it's a really good quote, and he gives us a good illustration of what that looks like. He says this on this topic of harmony or unity. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? So a tuning fork, pianos, a hundred of them automatically are all tuned together. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. It's interesting, isn't it? And that happens as we look to Christ individually, together, all of us striving and looking to Him, then we become tuned to that same song, we could say, to that same melody that would be played off of a piano. As members of this church, we've also taken vows to strive for peace and purity of this church body. That's a very important thing, to strive for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that comes when we all look to Christ. Tozer says, not by looking to unity, but by looking to Jesus. Then we get the unity that comes from that. 
So we're to have consistency, living in harmony or unity with a single purpose of standing firm to contend as one for the gospel. And then thirdly, we are to do it with bravery. We're to do it with bravery. And we see that in verse 28 in the first part there. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened by our opponents. And you can recall in verse 20, which we just read also, he uses that term full courage. Full courage. So not fear. Fear is a very, very powerful emotion, and that can cripple us. Fear can cripple us, and it also can make us more easily manipulated. We'll go along with things sometimes just out of fear. And Paul doesn't want us to act that way. As Christians, we are to fear nothing but the Lord. It's the one fear that will dispel all other fears. The fear of the Lord will dispel all other fears fears. And it takes courage to live the Christian life. It's not easy. We need bravery. We need that full courage that the apostle talks about, especially in our day and in this world. We must have that full courage. It takes courage to live the Christian life. Now that word frightened is a word that is used for when a horse gets spooked. It's that type of a, a frightening thing that happens when a, when a horse gets spooked. And you've all probably seen, at least on television, if it hasn't happened to you, I don't get along with horses, so I stay away from them. So they're not going to spook me. But maybe some of you have actually been on a horse that was spooked and you're tossed off. Or you've at least seen a cowboy movie where there's always that one uh, poor fellow who gets uh, bucked off of his horse and the horse is spooked and it's gone and he's got to walk. So you know exactly what that looks like, right? And sometimes horse get spooked by things that aren't even there. Sometimes it's something very small that, or perhaps a mouse or something and that, and that horse could just stomp on the mouse and he's done, but yet he rears up and he takes off. And that is the type of thing that the apostle's talking about here. Um, we've all seen that. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be spooked off by these, this opposition. Because when you show this kind of bravery in the face of that opposition... It means clarity to those who are watching you. And that is our next word, clarity, that we see coming out of this text in verse 28b. This is a clear sign, clarity. A clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And that from God. It's a clear sign. What is? The consistent life that you live of honoring the Lord, living in harmony with one another, having that unity, having that bravery, that becomes a distinguishing mark in your life that you are different. That you don't walk the way the world walks. You don't talk the way the world talks. You are different. You're, you're, it, you're marked out differently than the way of the world is. And that is a warning sign to the world, a warning sign. We all know what a traffic warning sign is, right? Uh, the black and the yellow signs, often fluorescent, or there's sometimes signs like on the Coquihalla that are all lit up. There are warning signs as well, and they might be circled in lights. These types of things are, think about a, a neon sign, a big neon sign that's blinking, flashing a warning a warning at you. And this is the type of imagery that we see here that your life, when you live this way, walking in that manner of the gospel, it's a warning sign to those who are perishing. It's telling people that there are two roads that you can go. There is a broad road that leads to destruction and there is a narrow way that leads to life. Your life does that to people. 
It becomes a warning for them. And so the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Our life is a warning sign. And it's a warning sign to those who are perishing. And it's also a sign to the godly as well, to the righteous. And this can sometimes make life difficult for us because people might not want to be around us because of that aroma of death. They're guilty. We remind them of their end. And that becomes something that people uh, don't want to be around and don't want to be with us. And so we're reminded here by the Apostle Paul of our next word, and that is agony. Agony. And we see that in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering for Christ's sake. Suffering has been granted to you as a gift. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Now we can see how belief is a gift. And that's a blessing that we are ready and willing and and quite happy to receive. But suffering as a gift? That's what the Apostle Paul says here. Suffering is a gift. And we so often have the idea of that if if I am experiencing ease and I'm experiencing comfort, I'm experiencing God's blessing. Sometimes we have that mindset. And then we think, well, this adversity has come along. This trial's come along. God is judging me. What have I done to deserve this? And we start to engage in self-pity. But here we see suffering as a gift. And we so often don't view it that way. And I, I think that it's for the same reason as we looked at two weeks ago that we don't view dying as gain. And the reason that we gave two weeks ago, was because of worldliness. You'll remember that quote from Matthew Henry, death is a great loss to a worldly carnal man. And so we might be able to say tonight, suffering is a great loss to a worldly carnal man because he loses all of his ease and all of his comfort. So we want ease and comfort so often, but God in his wisdom doesn't give that to us. What happens if you have ease and comfort in your life? Think about the the physical realm, and we all know that we should eat properly, we should exercise, we should go for walks with our wives, and we should go for a run, and we should do all these things to be healthy. But in our physical lives, if we are just given to ease and comfort and laziness, and we're docile and just kind of play around and watch television, whatever we do, and we eat terribly and do all these things, then we get fat and we get lazy. That's what happens. And also in the spiritual realm, when we have ease and comfort, we also can get lazy. We can get um, complacent. We can begin even to forget about God. And God in his wisdom reminds us that we need him, that we are, not, that we are dependent upon him continually. And that's that ease and comfort, that idea was not something that the, that the Apostle Paul experienced or something that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced. There was suffering that went on along with the gospel. And the Apostle Paul asked Timothy and invites him to suffer for the gospel. And our Bibles are very clear that if we are going to be committed to Christ 
If we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, if we are going to live a life of unity and bravery and all these different things that we're talking about, then in this world we will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. We will have agony in this world, but that leads to our last word, and that is camaraderie. Camaraderie, or we could say commonality or partnership. Verse 30, the Philippians are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. They're experiencing some of the same trials that the Apostle Paul experienced because they're living out that faith. And you remember uh, week one of this series, we looked at Acts chapter 16 and saw how the beginning of this church at Philippi began. We saw the conversion of Lydia. Um, We saw the conversion of this uh, slave girl who Paul cast the demon out and the, the owners didn't like that. And so they stir up trouble against Paul. What happens? Paul is beaten and he's jailed in Philippi, right? And then what happens there? A series of events unfolds, and through that event of the beating and the jailing, the Philippian jailer is converted. And so we see these things uh, happening in the Apostle Paul's life, and we see that this conflict is something that Paul has been engaged in, and he says here, had and still have. Because here he is once again, he's back in jail. That is the pattern of the Apostle Paul's life. He's back in jail. And so is God punishing the Apostle Paul? He's got all these hardships happening. Woe is me, the Apostle Paul. He's wallowing in self-pity while in prison. How could the Lord let this happen to me? God is punishing me. There's a frowning providence that's overtaking me. There's this big cloud that God has caused in my life. Life is not going well for the Apostle Paul, right? Wrong. It's going exactly the way the Lord had planned for him. Question for you. Would you receive a flogging and go to jail to see somebody saved? To see the salvation of a soul? I know that some of you would do that. I know that that the the worth of a soul would be that important to you to see that person's eternity change. And I know that some of you would do that. And the Apostle Paul saw the salvation of the slave girl, then saw the salvation of the jailer. The one conversion led to his beating and imprisonment. The other one was a result of his beating and imprisonment. You see the way the Apostle Paul looked at things had a tremendous impact in his life. He didn't wallow in self-pity. And we know that the Apostle Paul wouldn't have had it any other way. He would do it all over again. Because the souls of men and of these ladies was worth it to him. He wanted people to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and to come to him in faith and repentance. And that was the pattern of the Apostle Paul's life. There was the preaching of the gospel, there was beatings, and there was jail. And there was the preaching of the gospel and there was beatings and there was jail and rinse and repeat. That was the pattern of the apostle's life that we see unfold here. Life was tough for Paul and I know that life is tough for some of you as well. And so just by way of application here in our final five or seven or so minutes, do you ever feel like giving up? Do you ever feel like giving up in your Christian life? 
walking away from the faith. Life is hard. It's a struggle. And you may be sitting here thinking of consistency, harmony, bravery. All I see in my life is misery. Misery. That's another word that ends in Y that sometimes characterizes our lives. And we can think, is it even worth it to walk and to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? It'd be much more easy if I could just embrace my ease and my comfort and just go the way of the world, quit trying to swim upstream and be contrary to everything that's going on. I'm done with this. I'm just going to walk away. And you know some people who have. All of us do. They've just walked away. It's been difficult. The road has been hard and they've walked away. After all, don't those outside of the church appear to be prospering? Don't they appear to be having a much easier time than we have? Sure, they might have some of the same issues and problems that we have. But what they don't have to do is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They get to walk however they please, with whoever they please, and doing whatever they want to do. Whereas we feel constrained to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it is difficult and it is hard. And some people just want to walk away. Do you ever feel like that? Well, if you do, you're not alone. And if you are very quick, you can turn to Psalm 73. And if not, if not, then just uh, listen to these verses that we see here by the psalmist Asaph. And he says this, beginning in verse 2. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, why would he say that? He goes on to tell us. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So there's another man who sees the world prospering. And why am I doing this? Why am I walking in a righteous manner? I don't need to be doing this. It's way too difficult. I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to leave. And he says in verse 4 that their bodies are fat and sleek. They are enjoying life. They are having a good time. Enjoying all the things that this world has to offer. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why do we bother? Why are we coming here? Why are we doing this? Why are we in the Lord's house right now? Why bother? For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And then he says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When he's thinking through all these different things, it's so wearisome to think about. Until, and here's the transition and the important part for us, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Going to the house of the Lord changed entirely the way that he thought about things. The means of grace. Picking up the means of grace. Hearing the preaching of the word. Engaging in the sacraments. Prayer. These different things that we do. Fellowshipping with one another. Encouraging one another. The presence and the power and the promises of God when we come to the Lord's house that are brought to bear upon our minds through the preaching of the word and these different means that we undertake with. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. That is the way of the wicked. Swept away suddenly by terrors. 
That's not a part of anything that we want anything to do with. We want to be walking that righteous road. We want to be doing those things that the Lord has called us to do, as difficult as it might be to do. When we remember the Lord, that's what Asaph says here, he goes to the house of the Lord and he remembers the Lord. When we live in a way where we forget the Lord and all of his benefits, then we are not in a good place of heart or of mind. We need to remember that there is purpose. God has purpose in suffering and we need to view suffering under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God, that God has sovereign purposes in the trials that we go through in our life. John Owen says, God does not chasten us merely for his pleasure. He does it to make us partakers of his holiness. So that is one of the great benefits of suffering. It drives us to God and it makes us a holier person. God is much more concerned about our holiness in this life than he is about our happiness or our ease and our comfort. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to walk in a way that honors him where we represent the best of the kingdom of God. Paul saw suffering as a privilege. He says it's been granted to you. And the word granted comes from the word grace. God gives us the gift of suffering. That's the way the apostle looked at it. It's a grace. And that doesn't sound very fun. It's like getting something you don't want on Christmas morning. A gift of suffering? That's, a, that's you know, the, you get a gift on Christmas morning and you're not really crazy about it or you already have 10 of them and, and, and you don't really want that gift. But yet God says that it can be something that is good for us. What does suffering do? Well, some of the things that it does is suffering strips away our self-sufficiency. It draws us closer to the Lord. That's one purpose in suffering. Another is that it orientates us to heaven. We long for that heavenly kingdom. Our true citizenship is in heaven and we long to go home. And then it produces patience in us. Suffering works patience. Suffering works patience. And then it also makes us empathetic and sensitive to the suffering of other believers who go through trials similar to the trials that we've gone through. We can come alongside. We can pray for them. We can encourage them. It's not easy. It is a battle. And the Apostle Paul understood that this world is not a playground. It's a battleground. And that's why so much of the imagery that he uses talks about the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And so did our Lord Jesus Christ. And when faced with suffering, neither Paul nor Jesus turned inward to self-pity or lashed out in anger. That's often the two responses that we see to people when they're under this type of duress or suffering or things aren't going the way that they want them to. Self-pity or lashing out in anger. And the Lord Jesus Christ did not do that in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we see in Mark chapter 14 and verse 36, we see Jesus is praying in the garden just before his arrest. And the scripture says that he is in great distress, troubled, sorrowful, even to death. And so what does he do? He prays. And he prays that this cup of suffering would be removed from him. Was it removed? No, it was not. It was not removed. And Jesus had the ability to put his suffering under that umbrella of the sovereignty of God. Jesus prays and says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. All things are possible. He knew that God was absolutely sovereign. He had confidence in the sovereignty of God that he could do anything. And he says, remove this cup from me and it's not removed. 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's a great lesson in suffering, to submit to the will of God, even in suffering. It's so hard to do. Total confidence in God's power, complete submission to His will. That's what we see in the life of the Lord Jesus. And there's perhaps no greater way for us to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel, to be submissive in suffering. To submit to God in suffering, not withdrawing in self-pity, not lashing out in anger, but submitting in suffering. And in that way, we become a witness to the world in how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's a rare thing. It's a tremendous sign to a watching world, and you are being watched. It's a tremendous sign to them of their destruction, but of our salvation, and that from God. Let's pray. Oh God, you often call us to go through trials that are difficult, and I know many here are struggling, many here are suffering, and I ask, O oh Lord, that you would relieve their suffering, and if you choose not to, that you'd give them great grace, and that they would see the grace of suffering as a gift, as difficult as it is, and I ask that you would bless them and be with each one who is facing these trials tonight and this evening, and we pray that you would draw near to us and we would draw near to you and your promises and know your presence with us through trials. In Christ's name, amen.